Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Amy Schechtman, president and CEO of Two Life Communities. The nonprofit operator has six senior housing campuses for low and middle income older adults in and around the Boston area. One of the biggest challenges for senior living operators today is creating a viable option for middle market seniors. But that is the aim of Opus, Two Life's new middle market senior housing brand, which is aimed at bringing rates down for older adults through a mixture of community volunteerism, centralized locations, and partnerships with other care providers. Sheckman says the need for those services is great, and it's growing. I'm a deep believer, almost a zealot, for the concept that every Older adults should live a full life of connection and purpose in a dynamic, supportive environment. And if you believe that by right, every person should have that opportunity, then you know there's a whole group that's being denied it for no reason other than they didn't accumulate wealth. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next Build Conference happening in Chicago on November 17 and 18. BUILD is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in senior living architecture, design, and innovation for owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on BUILD and our other scheduled events. And now, here's my interview with Amy Sheckman, president and CEO of Two Life Communities. Amy Sheckman, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So I wanted to start with kind of a state of play. I mean, obviously, the past year and a half plus some months has been pretty challenging for the the senior living industry. So I wanted to check in, you know, what has Two Life communities seen during this pandemic at, at your campuses? And also, how is the recovery for those campuses going on right now? So, first of all, it's an honor to be here, and thank you for asking that question, because I'm extremely proud of how we're doing. I'm a little surprised you're asking the question in the past tense, because I feel like we're still quite immersed in the middle of it, although obviously we've gotten to a major milestone with a vaccination of the population. So, it was a hard, I, you know, everybody knows it was a really hard time. We approached it with an aggressive and energetic approach that said, we love our folks and we have every duty to protect them. So in the end, we did really well. So during, you know, the first wave, and I would say the, the most significant wave, because we're almost all vaccinated now, we managed to keep the infection rate at all of our communities to 4.6% compared to 8.5% for Massachusetts, just people, regular people living in their own homes and stuff. And in the assisted living and this nursing home community, it was more like 47%. So we kept that rate down. And we were very fortunate that we we hated everyone that we lost, but we lost fewer than 1%, which I think given COVID and how distinctly it really attacked older adults and that a third of our folks are between the ages of 85 and 105, I think we did really well. One, we did a lot. You know, the minute COVID started, we made a decision that we would never look back and regret that there was anything we could have done, but didn't do because of money or time or energy. 
So that fell into two basic categories. One is doing everything to allow folks to remain in their apartments and feel safe and to join them as our partners. We had a community heroes program where we asked our residents to be community heroes and partner with us to keep the infection out of the building. And the second category of things was, if you remember when it was happening last March, April, May, June, we were getting bombarded with conflicting information, confusing information, terrifying information. And one of the roles we really played was to sort it out and help people understand what was relevant and what wasn't relevant and to stay in touch with everyone. The first week COVID hit, we had our staff call every single person. Where are you? What do you need? What are you worried about? How often would you like us to check in with you? So we had a master spreadsheet. No one was lost. Everyone knew that we were, we were there with them. We also hired our own epidemiologist because that was the best way we could help sort out all the confusing and conflicting information. So we worked very, very hard. We provided free meals. Now, remember, we're primarily an affordable house. Well, we are. We are an affordable housing organization. The median household income in our portfolio is $11,078 a year. We rely a lot on government subsidies. And so as part of our normal programming, food isn't part of the day-to-day. Groceries are not part of the day-to-day. But we went to a plan where we provided free meals, free groceries delivered to your door, did laundry service for everyone. So no one had to go down to the laundry rooms, made a deal with the post office. We could sort and disinfect mail and packages delivering to the door. So it was a very comprehensive set of things that we did. And as I said, we asked our residents to sign a community heroes pledge and those who did, who pledged to stay in their apartment as much as they could and only go out with a mask, not touching dials. And of course, we also had soup to nuts cleaning four times a day, every banister, every elevator lobby. And together we did it and we're still doing it. Great. You know, it's it's clear just from talking with you that the mission is is at, you know, sort of the forefront of what you're doing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Two Life is, a, I believe, a faith-based organization. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, obviously, though, doing all of this can be expensive. So I'm curious how, you know, I often hear the phrase, you know, no mission without margin. And obviously, right now, it's a tough time. But how do you balance the need to, you know, do that mission with also the need to, you know, keep your, your checkbook in, in line and balance your expenses and all of that. Is that is that a hard balance? So let me take that question in two parts. You said, what does your mission matter? Sort of how does your mission drive it? And then the mission and margin question. So mission is everything. Mission drives every single decision we make. We are deeply driven by the fact that our older adults are to be treasured. Um, You know, the ancient Hebrew word, zakain, you can translate it either way as old or wise. It's the same thing. And you think about that as a framework. And you also think about the word kavod, which is honor. You know, the Torah doesn't say, take care of your mom and dad. It says, honor thy mother and father. We, We see that as a collective enterprise. So that drives everything we do every decision we make. And of course, 
we have a responsibility to repair the world. It's called tikkun olam. And the inequities in our society, the vast differences between seniors of different income levels um, and the amount of wealth that's in part of the community and not at all in the other part of the community, it's up to us to close that gap. That's our, we own that. Now, mission margin. You asked about balance. It's not a balance. It's the same thing. We can't do what we need to do unless we have a way, unless we generate the resources and steward those resources carefully and are very forward thinking. And when I say forward thinking, for example, when I came to life just 11 years ago, we had no money in the bank. There were no reserves. There were just there just wasn't money. And so we operated day to day. And if the government was late on its rent, because a lot of our money is from the government, we couldn't pay our bills. And that felt like not a great way to operate. And, you know, people used to say, what keeps you up at night? Oh, that kept me up at night. <laughs> so we set on a path to develop a rainy day fund. And it took us about eight, nine years, right? We had to carefully use various strategies. But luckily, by the time COVID hit, we had a rainy day fund put aside for emergencies. Now, the fact that we had imagined the emergency would be government shutdown or sequestration, and it was something really different, doesn't really matter. But we were quite strategic. And now we have to build that back up because we used a lot of it. In fact, we took about a $5 million hit from 2020 with our COVID three and a half million direct costs and then a million and a half in lost revenue because there was a period of about six, eight months that we decided not to fill any vacant units. We didn't want moving vans and people we didn't control in the buildings. Um, So we're building back and we're strategically seeking out resources. Now, some of those resources, we had a PPP loan from the government, which got forgiven. So that took care of some of it and we did piece together. But we never operate every day, every day, I think about how are we going to do what we need to do? And we can't make any compromises. These are treasured elders. These are people we need to honor. These are people who are the provide the wisdom for society. And so we've got to figure out how to serve them the way they deserve and support them the way they deserve. And so we have to find the margin because we have to do the mission. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Part of the reason why we're talking today, Amy, is I recently learned of of an interesting concept that Two Life is working on, and actually wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So to back up and and sort of catch our listeners up to speed, you know, the middle market is a big topic of interest in the senior living industry. I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. Two Life is working on something called Opus, and so that is, as I understand it, sort of a middle, a new middle market senior housing product. But what's interesting about it is there does seem to be some changes from sort of what we think of as what has been traditionally kind of the middle market. So I want to talk with, with you about kind of what that looks like and, and what you're thinking about in terms of what Opus will be. But before we do that, I actually wanted to ask you first: When did you first start to feel strongly about offering? options for the middle market? You know, was there a particular moment when you realized, hey, the middle market is going to be a very pressing issue for seniors in the future? Sure. Well, thank you for that question. It is, I think, not like anything else. And I'll tell you why. We as an organization, because we are really mission-driven, we only go where the market fails. If the market can solve a problem, we're not interested good. Mazel tov. Let the market solve that problem. We're interested in the gaps. We're interested in the people that are being failed, abandoned. 
So our core portfolio is this deeply subsidized portfolio that started in 1965. It continues, it will continue at, we will be as aggressive and build as much housing for that lowest of incomes as we possibly can, no doubt there. What started to happen after I took this job is I would get calls, I would like to say daughters and sons, but I'm going to be honest, it's almost all daughters. And they call me and they're crying. And they say, my mom, she applied for Golden Mayer House or Coleman House or Brown House. And she earns $50 a month too much. And everyone in your office is saying, we can't help you. You have to be able to help us. Can't you make an exemption? And I cried too because I wish I could make an exemption. And the thing is, if I took that risk and one person, one person was found out that we went over the income limit, we could lose every, all the 20 million of subsidy we get a year. We cannot do that. There's no flexibility. And it feels terrible to tell someone who earns a little bit too much when I know there's nothing in the market, nothing that can serve them, just feels crappy, just feels bad. And I'm a deep believer, almost a zealot for the concept that every older adult should live a full life of connection and purpose in a dynamic supportive environment. We call that aging and community. I know that's kind of what the senior housing industry uses as their terms. To. And if you believe that by right, every person should have that opportunity, then you know there's a whole group that's being denied it for no reason other than they didn't accumulate wealth in the way some of them the fancy people have. And in the greater Boston area, it's a lot of wealth. It's, you know, it's a chasm. It's not a market gap. It's a market abyss. And so it started making me crazy that I couldn't help them. And then we came to this almost a catch, maybe not the right word for catch 22, but I don't know a better word. So then we said, okay, so how do we do this? Now, mind you, we're not going to do it and look at housing alone. That's easy. No, we believe if someone comes to us, we're going to take care of them. We're going to support them to live their whole life with us. And if you think about a middle-income person, what croaks them? What ends up undoing them is when they start to need a little bit of care, they can't purchase it in a single family home in 15-minute increments or half an hour increments. And this happened with my own mother. And that was the other like realization is I started having to hire. She needed a little bit of help in the morning, a little bit of help at night. I had to hire eight hours a day and savings dwindles. So if you think about what a middle-income person is going to need for their whole life, you get into this dilemma because they can't pay enough for you to run a community that provides all the supports and services that take them through their whole life and protect them from premature nursing homes and things that nobody wants to be doing. You can't charge enough and you can't get government money and you can't really rely on philanthropy. You know, in the rest of our portfolio, we get a lot of government rent and we get a lot of philanthropy. So now you've got, you can't bring in the revenue and you can't reduce the expenses and the expenses are more than the revenue. That's not a good formula. <laughs> and so you say you want margin emission. Well, that sounds like not a good match. So banged our head against the wall for about four years. We've got to figure this out because these people are crying on the phone. 
And so we came up with three basic concepts that we think break that breakthrough. The first is volunteerism. The second is location. And the third is partnerships. So really briefly, everyone who comes to Opus will volunteer in a meaningful way enough that we actually reduce staffing and overhead costs. Good thing. Second is we're locating, I mentioned that it's going to be on the campus of Coleman House. So we locate near other things. So we're not trying to build self enclosed communities where everything happens on the site. Yeah, you'll go out to go grab dinner or you'll go out to a movie. Not everything is on site. And then the third is we have partnerships so that, for example, I mentioned this real dilemma about home care when you need a little bit of home care. So we're going to have it on the site. And so we can't pay for it for you. We can't subsidize it. But what we can do is make sure you can hire only what you need because most people's trajectory is you need a little bit, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. It's not like, good morning. Okay, now I need 24-7. It, it just doesn't typically happen. So your own money will go much farther. So between those three things, we think we finally broke through the gap, particularly in the, in the Boston area where land is expensive and construction is expensive and blah, blah, everything, name it. And yet those folks in the middle don't have that kind of wealth. So we have to care about them. I, I want to ask you about the, the concept a little bit more. I have some more questions about this. Remind me though, the, the actual, uh, the physical building that this first Opus community will be, what, what will that look like? How many residents uh, are you envisioning for this very first foray into this concept? Okay, it will look gorgeous, is the simple answer. And we're in permitting now, and our hope is we'll come out where we started, which is 174 apartments. It will be adjacent to Coleman House, which is one of our affordable communities, and those two buildings will be next to each other, and in between will be a two-story, all-glass, actually, community center with doors from both sides. So it will provide kind of energetic, wonderful programming visible to each community and accessible to each community. So that's our first one. We're in permitting now and wish us luck. Hold your breath. (laughs) That will get out of it. We've got an enormous amount of local community support. I love it because people come to the hearings in tears saying, you know, there's no other place for me and how much it matters. And I, so we're feeling good about the support we've gotten from so many different parts of the community. The environmentalists are in favor because it's a passive house concept. The affordable housing folks are, are in favor because they see this huge gap as well. And we've developed the kind of respect from serving for so long, the extremely low people who live with us come and testify and say, it's amazing the kind of loving kindness that drives every decision to life makes and it feels great living here. So that's the kind of nuts and bolts of it. Did I answer all the parts of the question? I might have missed something. Absolutely. And I guess the only other one that I have was, and you're probably still figuring this out, but in terms of rates for this middle market, concept. Is there a range or something that you're looking for or something that you want to hit? Well, it has to be affordable in the middle. So what drives the way we're thinking about the financing is we need to keep the monthly fee, the, the rent, if you will, as low as possible. 
as we've done focus groups and as people have called me crying on the phone, we hear again and again what people are frightened of is an ongoing obligation that what happens when they can't meet that. And so people are less afraid of a one-time thing because it's more in their control and they can predict. So everything's been driven by keeping monthly rent way below market. And I don't even mean below market for CCRCs and fancy things. I mean below market for just rental housing that's of this quality. So so that's driving it. What that leads you to is a community share component, which is an upfront. And we're gearing that to be about 50% or so of the median single family home price in the market area. So that when people sell their home, they can retain that extra amount that will allow them, even though we're going to make it easier and more affordable and less over time, to have money available for their own needs as as they live with us for their whole lives. So that's not an answer with numbers because we're close but not there yet. I've got to see what comes out of permitting. If they change the basic character, they reduce the number of units, everything will change. And I don't want to promise something I can't yet deliver, but I can promise that we will never lose that laser sharp focus on the affordability, the monthly fees. Yeah. You mentioned the community share to sort of restate that to you. It sounds, so it sounds like that's almost like an entry fee basically. And you said 50% single family home, you know, for the area. One thing that I found interesting and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I understand that residents can actually borrow against that community share. So how does how does that work and, and when might a resident borrow against their community share and for what reason? So remember, I started with, we're not just interested in helping people when they come in or helping people who have everything that they need. We're committed to if people come to us, we care about them for their entire lives. So there may come a time when best planning, most effective thought process, and you need more support than you needed, than you ever expected. That happens. And so the community share would be available to, I guess we call it borrow against. It's funny because it comes back to the estate at the end anyway. So it's, it's using that money. Now, the driver of the community share came from our obsession with keeping those monthly rents low. And if you want to keep them low, what does that mean? You need low debt. You need a low mortgage amount because if you have a big debt, then you've got to cover that debt. The debt coverage ratio has to be, you know, over one and that makes it hard. So our way of getting to keep the debt extremely low is to have people who come with us give us a community share from the proceeds of selling their home and we pay down well, we, we keep pay down construction debt and then make sure that the long-term debt, the mortgage, if you will, is very low and therefore creates very low demand on the monthly rent. So that was the origins of the community share. Does it compare a little bit with entry fees? Maybe somewhat. Really came out of a completely different concept. And we think it's really driven by not what we need. It's driven by what we expect people to maybe need and to make sure we can always be there to meet those needs with them as a partner. 
You also mentioned uh, there's a volunteerism component at play in Opus. Can you describe how that will work? And yeah. also, how, how does that mean you're going to lean on you know volunteers such as family members to provide some of the services that you know caregivers might have? Yeah, I guess tell me more about what that would look like in the sure. community. Well, let's clarify volunteerism and volunteers. Okay, so there's the volunteerism that's part of the program, and then there's volunteerism that families do. Regardless of what we do, families often are incredible partners in supporting parents, aunts, uncles, sisters, and that will always happen. The volunteerism we're talking about as part of Opus, in terms of what we would expect, is not that kind. The kind of volunteerism we're looking at is how to make community life rich without having extraordinary or exorbitant staffing costs. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm going to tell you a story because this one just touched my heart. We were doing focus groups and I'll have to tell you, to be honest, like I thought this idea of volunteerism, I just loved it. And everyone on the team was like, are you crazy? Like, oh, one of her things again. I'm like, that's just dumb, blah, blah. So let's test it. So we test it in the focus groups. So we offered people, you know, can you choose A, B, or C? A would be two hours a month. If you're required to volunteer two hours a month, one was five hours a month and one was two hours a week. 83% chose two hours a week. Like, what? So after one of them, you know, you're not allowed to talk during, but I, I went, and I said, okay, guys, like, what's going on? Why aren't you choosing the least? Why are you choosing the most? And this, oh, this gentleman, still remember him, I get t- choked up. He said, my wife died two years ago. I'm lonely. And I'm really shy. And I know you're going to tell me again and again, I could sit down at any table and people will welcome me. And I'm going to tell you again and again, I will never sit down at anybody's table that I don't know. But I was a librarian. So I'm going to work in the library as a volunteer and people are going to come in and I'm going to say, what kind of books do you like? And then I'm going to make the best recommendations and they're going to love what I recommend and they're going to come back again. They're going to say, that was such a good recommendation. What else do you recommend? I say, why did you like it? And we'll get into this conversation. And you know what? They're going to invite me to sit at their table. I was like, "Ah, okay. So it's that kind of volunteerism, running the library, running the book groups. We undoubtedly, given that it's a Boston area, we will have former faculty members from the universities around here. Do they have connections with other faculty members? You bet they do. So do I have to organize the lifelong lecture series? No, I don't. Could they do it? Yep. Here's another thing. We're not going to have a cafeteria or dining room where you eat every night because people don't want that. And we don't want to have that as part of the, the expectations financially. We live in a rich area of wonderful kind of restaurants. So I started calling restaurants and said, if we gave you no, you know, certain number of hours notice and had, you know, 25 or 30, could you deliver meals for what? And I said, oh, you know, maybe $14, $15 a person. Well, that's affordable for the middle. So someone can organize that. Tonight's Chinese takeout. Who wants in? Here's the five menu choices you choose. Oh, tonight's Italian. That kind of thing. Or maybe someone else is going to organize a potluck. Or someone else is going to organize a cocktail hour. Or dessert. Let's have a dessert buffet and, you know, bring in. These kind of things that make community life really rich can happen if, we organize it for people or people can organize it organically 
by who they are and what matters to them. And we'll be their partners. We're not going to have an activities director. We are going to have a volunteer coordinator who will support you. So if you want to organize something that needs five volunteers and you're a little daunted by that, well, someone can help you do that. But this kind of coming from who you are, and I have to tell you, it's been amazing. So as we've now started to go to the next stage of trying to get support for the permitting and hearing people, when people tell us, you know, when they testify at these hearings, like they want this, I say like, what makes you want it? And they say, oh, I want it because I'll volunteer and I'm going to get to know people or I'll volunteer and I'm going to make a difference and I want to make a difference. I don't want to lose that part of myself. And so the volunteerism is turning out not to be a turnoff. Au contraire, it's turning out to be something that attracts people, which is really groovy when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is very interesting. So I, I want to actually talk with you a little bit about what you think that the senior living industry can do to make things a little bit more affordable. Before we do that, though, I understand you, you mentioned partnerships with other healthcare providers. So tell me how that's going to work in the Opus, Opus model and how that can help lower costs, I'm, I'm assuming probably in on the care side. Right. So that is somewhat still a work in progress because we're negotiating with a lot of partners and not surprisingly, they're saying, well, it's like two, three years out. We can't make a commitment now. So we are, but okay, you can't. So there's there's healthcare and there's home care. And I think both are really important concepts. The home care in some ways is a little bit easier because what you need is really good quality, really good support for the people who do it. And then it just needs to be affordable. And the affordability for us is really going to be driven by small increments of care. We're not asking to pay people less. We're not asking to charge less. We're asking to break it down. So we will guarantee hours and therefore a a home care agency can put someone on the site and share amongst our different residents and thereby using that the density that comes from, now remember, it's going to be next to Coleman House too, so 174 units and 146 units. Use that density so that the overhead can be spread more thinly and people can. So that's, we're working on that. We'll have a couple of partners very interested in doing that. We'll pick a mission-driven organization that also cares about getting down to, to make it affordable. Healthcare is a whole nother ball of wax, One of my frustrations in the world is that we have a healthcare silo and we have a housing silo and the most effective possible platform for delivering quality healthcare is housing. It goes beyond a shadow of a doubt. And yet, near the twain shall meet in terms of regulatory structure, funding structure. So we're working and we'll continue to work on finding health insurance partners who get it, that the benefit to an insured, to someone they're insuring, of having them age in community, not be lonely, not be alone, not wonder where to go and be afraid of the next steps, but have a partner in that process. You know, you know this, the data is so clear. Loneliness is far more dangerous for older adults than smoking or obesity. And if you could offer an insurance company, a a group of people that never smoked and weren't obese, they would say, oh, give me that, give me that. So they need to be saying, give me that, give me that. And we're trying to find that kind of partnership. And we will, because it's in everybody's 
self-interest to merge the way we think about housing and healthcare in a preventative way. Now, on the affordable side, we're in the middle of construction on one and almost construction on another. So we're having a PACE Center, which stands for Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. That is a preventive-focused healthcare program. And they're working with us to serve our existing population, which is fantastic. They're also interested in partnering with us to think more broadly about what happens to the people. Again, it's the same thing, right? You earn a little bit too much to qualify for PACE, but not enough to get kind of the, the wraparound, progressive, preventative approach that you deserve. So between those partners and other partners, Medicare Advantage, of course, got a lot of flexibility in the last set of improvements and by Congress. It's a hopeful marriage that we're going to make. And stay tuned. Great. And I will, I will certainly be following this because it is something that I personally am very interested in. You'd mentioned the housing and the care sort of silos. And that, that sort of rings true for me because I've seen a lot of senior living providers, especially on the for-profit side, look to the housing side of the component, looking to the housing component of, of the community, trying to bring costs down, you know, less amenities, you know, fewer sort of bells and whistles, so to speak. And, and it sounds like that's definitely part of the equation. I'm curious, though, in your take, since you've put all this work into figuring out, you know, operationally how things can be more affordable or, or middle market, as you look across the senior living industry, do you see any other ways that the industry can make this service more affordable for those middle market residents? Well, I'll tell you after we open, <laughs> because, you know, as I said, we were banging our heads against the wall for about four years. Um, it isn't that hard if you don't care about keeping people for their whole lives and supporting them for their whole lives. Then there's many ways. But if you really care about that whole trajectory, then this is the only thing we could think of. <laughs> and so hopefully we'll see how it goes and then we'll see what we learn and share it as broadly as we can. Hopefully this doesn't put you on the spot here, Amy, but I have a question for you about margins and and sort of how you make it work on that side. I have heard from other people in the industry, again, on the for-profit side, that their margins, they feel like their margins would have to change or the margins mm-hmm. of their investors might have to change to make a true middle market product. Do you agree with that? Do you think that they're just, there's maybe the industry is, is maybe needs some structural changes in order to meet the middle market? You know, I've never worked at a for-profit, so I don't have any ability to judge that. What I can say as a nonprofit that's exclusively mission-driven and mission-driven to only meet the places the market fails, we're trying to break even. We are not trying to have any additional funds come out of this. Now, that said, once we do the first one and we learn more, will we decide there should be a little bit of margin to help fund innovation or fund the next one, maybe. But right now, our goal is quite simply break even and serve people who don't have the opportunity to age in community. That's all that matters to us. Great. Well, Amy, I, I have uh, a couple more questions about Two Life, and then I think we'll we'll have to wrap it up this morning. So I wanted to get your take on the future. So again, we're, we're in an interesting time. You had mentioned at the beginning of our call, we are certainly still in the middle of this pandemic. And that is that is apparent every time you you turn on the news. So, you know, I, I, sort of, I guess everyone's sort of having to take out their crystal balls and make predictions right now. And I won't hold you, you know, to a hard prediction. But as you sort of look around you, what do you think is ahead for the industry through the rest of this year in terms of challenges and opportunities? And then, 
you know, how are you preparing for the rest of this pandemic to play out? You know, I guess how long might all of this last or how long are you preparing for this to last? Right. Well, crystal ball time. Let's start with the things we do know. Okay. The older adult population is growing pretty dramatically and will continue to grow for quite a while. We know that this generation of baby boomers is inclined to want to make the world a better place, has been grown up feeling they have agency and they're going to want to continue to have agency at what they do. We also know that the wealth gap is growing, that the top 5% is accumulating more and more and the rest of us less and less. Homelessness amongst older adults is actually rising and housing costs are the biggest factor in older adult poverty. In Massachusetts, we rank 50 out of the 50 states in elder economic security simply because of our high housing costs. That's what drives that. So all of those things are happening. And COVID has had a profound impact on all of us. And I think when the dust settles, when people see what happened to people who lived in good, well-run senior communities driven by loving kindness above all else, folks did better. I think that loneliness that was endemic anyway grew during the pandemic for people who didn't. I think the fear factor of how scary it was to not even know where to turn. And when they talked to friends who lived with us and they knew exactly where to turn, there was a phone number 24-7 they could call and get answers. I think it's going to make community living, aging in community, more popular than ever. And that is going to drive the need for one, much more affordable housing. I mean, our current waiting list is 4,842 households. At our current rate of turnover, that would take us 37 years to clear the wait list. That's unconscionable. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse in terms of need, which is why we're on such aggressive campaign to build more affordable housing. And that middle is going to continue to have nothing viable, no place that serves them. And I'm hoping they'll get politically activated and demand it as they should. So I think we're in for some interesting times and and I hope we're part of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Amy, before I let you go, what's next for Two Life Communities? This is your chance to, you know, you've talked a lot about what you're doing with Opus and some of your other plans, but if there's anything else left on the table, this is your chance to tell the world. So in addition to closing all the market gaps, I mean, Opus will, the first time out, only close the market gap for people who own their own homes. We don't yet have a method to to get to people who didn't accumulate savings or either through a home or other ways. So ultimately, we're going to use this to figure out how to meet the entire market failure. And we're going to continue to drive the affordable housing industry with our other partners to be as responsive with services and programs and community life as we are. And that takes some funding changes, federal and state and local levels. And advocacy is a really important component of what we do. We believe aging in community is the gold standard and therefore ought to be a right of every elder adult. And so we are very active in the advocacy world. I've been fortunate to be named to the governor's 
Council on Old Aging in Massachusetts and the mayor of Boston, we're going to get a new one soon, but the last mayor I was on housing advisory panel. And so we, and right now I'm president of CHAPA, which is Citizens Housing and Planning Association, the statewide coalition of all affordables, all providers of affordable housing. We'll continue to be very active in all of those arenas. And we won't stop until by right, every older adult has the opportunity to age in community with a laser sharp focus on affordability. Well, those are great words to end it on. I know we could talk a lot more about this, but we're out of time. So Amy Sheckman, thank you so much for coming on Transform. I feel like I've learned a lot today. And again, it was a great discussion. So thank you. Thank you. Let's keep talking. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming Build event in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.